Well, Revelation chapter 1, and we've uh, just barely gotten started, and we saw in verse 7 there last week as we finished in verse 8, the Lord's coming, who was and is and is to come. And that should be an exciting thing to us. Last week, Nathan talked on the rapture. And again, often people are scared, going, oh man, don't say that, it scares me that we'd be raptured out of here because in their conscience, they are pretty confident they're going to be left behind. And you don't want to be there, guys. So often when you do funerals and people are saying, well, you know, I think he was a Christian and, you know, I hope he was a Christian and, you know... A couple of weeks before he died, he wanted his Bible brought into the hospital room. He didn't read it. He just sort of sat there. You know, and it's just a weird thing when, when people are just not on fire for the Lord, loving Jesus, seeking Jesus, serving Jesus, wanting to put Jesus first in their life. And if that's not the case, then you are wondering, am I going to get left behind? Two in the field. One is taken. One is left. And Jesus continually warns us. Over and over again, watch, pray, be ready. The days are going to be as Sodom and Gomorrah. Are we there? Are we there? It says that Lot's righteous soul was vexed every day. I had mentioned a few months ago that the lineup this fall was going to be in-your-face homosexuality, and that's exactly what it is. Every show is just in-your-face, the new normal is one of the new shows about two homosexual guys trying to adopt a, a poor lady's baby. And, and these guys are cool. And, and, and you know, I watched the, the first episode. I was talking to the guys at the men's retreat about it. And, I mean, they brought in the absolute best writers. And they twisted and put it in such a way that if you're not for these guys and, and for everything they say, you are strange. And, and you feel it. It's like, Wow, this is a quality show. But at the same time, it's twisting, saying that this is the lifestyle you should accept. And if you don't accept it, there's something wrong with you. And in every show, this is it. It's not you have a you know, weird homosexual guy who likes bright colors. You know, he, it's just, he's just in the norm of it. And, and it's not even trying to point out he's homosexual. It's, he is, but that's just the way it is. And, and this is, again, um, you know, guys coming in kissing guys and girls coming in kissing girls. It's just right there at primetime television. And, uh, and so, again, it says that, that Lot's righteous soul is vexed every day. And then it says, remember Lot's wife. Remember when the angels were trying to drag them out of Sodom and Gomorrah, get them out of there. They said, you ran out of time. And she's just like, oh, but my hairdresser and the guy who does my head and my nails. And, oh, you know, they're the best interior decorators in the world are here in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, oh, I got to leave it. And, and the word that says she looked back longingly, that word in the Hebrew was just, there was just this deep affection for Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says she was turned to a pillar of salt. And then Lot grabbed two of his four daughters, took them away, lived up, you know, in the, away from all the cities, lived out in, in the caves with his daughters, and both of them said, ah, we're going to be past age of having kids. They got their own dad drunk. 
They were perverted themselves. And from their own dad in a sexual relationship, they end up having kids. The Ammonites and the Moabites. Two people that would raise up to be countries that would fight against Israel to try to destroy Israel. And so, again, these would be as Noah. If you go back and read in Genesis 6 and 7 and 8, the, the thing that you strikes with Noah is violence. That there is continual violence and people loving violence. And this is, again, what we see throughout the world. There's just this deep desire for violence. There's no problem with violence. And uh, we, we know it's the norm. People, again, beating their wives or horrible violence, you know, gangs killing other people over drugs. It's just the norm. We expect it. We just sort of try to dodge around it the best we can. And uh, we are in a world as Noah's world. We are in the world as Sodom and Gomorrah, as the Bible talked about it. And the Lord's coming. And for us, we need to get on fire. We need to be excited because it's also a time when God's Spirit is going to pour upon the believers. There's the latter rain, Joel talks about. The earlier rain was the day of Pentecost. There's a latter rain where we're waiting and we're ready and we're you know, pure and set aside for the Lord so when he's ready to pour out his spirit upon his church, we are ready. You know, 120 in the upper room, you say, that was exciting, but there was 500 there when Jesus ascended into heaven. 380 people were like, ah, I've been waiting for five days, I gotta go home. I've been waiting 10 days and I gotta get home and, you know, water my crops. I'm, you know, 15 days and I need to get back. But it whittled away until there was 120 out of 500. I'll tell you, those 380 people were kicking themselves, weren't they? When they found out the great outpouring of God's Spirit, the beginning of the church, they're like, man, I should have just prayed. What about that guy who prayed 39 days <laughs> and missed the day of Pentecost, you know? We, we need to be there, a people of prayer. Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry. And both times he said, my father's house shall be a house of what? Prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. And it's the last thing. It's often our priority. It's the last thing we have time for. It's the last thing we're patient to be able to do. You know, we're three minutes into prayer and we just have no appetite for it. We're just, we have no vision for it. We're not mature enough. There's just not a maturity in us to pray a half an hour or an hour. It's like, I'm, I'm done. I've been praying three minutes and I'm done. There, there's something wrong there. There's something that's supposed to be happening that's not happening. And, and God needs to develop in us a people of prayer. Well, we come tonight to verse 9. And he says, I, John, both your brother and companion, you know, again, here's John, the only apostle alive, probably close, close to 100 years old. And what does he say? I'm the apostle, I'm the bishop, I'm the reverend. Call me the most holy bishop, reverend John. What does he do? Hey, I'm just John. It's always amazing. I get these letters from England, you know, the PhD, reverend, bishop, you know, of whatever. I'm here to talk to you about Jesus. 
that amazing? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty God, the Creator of all things. And we've been conditioned to just say, Jesus. I mean, if we are calling the one who should have a title that goes into infinity, you know, we start off King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Creator of all, you know, Almighty God, the Alpha and Omega. I mean, we just shouldn't stop. We should just never get to Jesus because he is infinitely wonderful. But yet we don't. We just come and say, Jesus. How much more man should have no title? And I love this about John. I'm just your brother. I'm just your companion. I'm a big nobody. I'm just a guy who's fighting the fight alongside you and notice tribulation and kingdom. And here's a big one, patience of Jesus Christ. You know, that's when you look about the end times, it's always that one. That people are saying, why hasn't the Lord come back? I don't think he's coming back. You've always been saying he's coming back. Ever since I've been a Christian, you're saying he's coming back. I'm tired of waiting for him to come back. I don't think he's going to come back. You know, it's the patience, isn't it? Why hasn't the Lord returned? It gets, it gets ridiculous. Peter tells us. It's because the Lord is waiting for that one more person to get saved. How many of you guys have been saved in the last year? Aren't you glad the Lord didn't come back a year ago? How many of you guys got saved in the last five years? Aren't you glad the Lord didn't come back six years ago? Yeah, I mean, we should be great to the Lord. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And so again, the Lord's patient, and we need to be patient. And it's hard, because the things get harder and more difficult. And, you know, I was talking to a group of, of guys and uh, of pastors, and then uh, in, my past, in my Bible college, and... It's the same across everybody. There, there is a curse upon our nation right now. And, you know, if there's a flu epidemic that goes to the nation, the Lord tells us it rains on the good and on the evil. We all will get that flu as well, right? If we pray and God blesses us, the non-believers get to share in that blessing. But right now, we as a nation have gotten more light than any nation in all of history has gotten light. Our forefathers established this country in Christianity, even though they're trying to rewrite it, saying, no, there wasn't Christianity, there's a bunch of deists and you know, all this crazy stuff. Our forefathers had their Bibles, even the deists had their Bibles. They believed in the Judeo-Christian ethic. And when they came to whatever issue it was, they, they, they followed the scriptures. And so again, we, we were established um, in the principles of God and now we're just gone from it and just spitting in his face. Billy Graham said it years ago, decades ago. He said, if God doesn't soon judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And how true it is. And one of the things that is difficult right now is just... Money doesn't seem to go as far. And, and you guys are feeling it. And this is, a, again, all the more why we need to honor the Lord with our tithes and our offerings. We need his blessing upon our widow's might more than ever before. We need him to open the windows of heaven and strengthen us more than ever before. And again, talking to people, just everybody seems to be wrestling with that. It's just 
it just seems like, oh, you're just trying to inch forward, inch forward. And it's just like, why is this not working? Why does it seem to be so difficult? And again, I, I just say that we are suffering along with a wicked country and God's going to bless us, guys. God's going to give us what we need, not necessarily what we want, but he will provide for us according to his riches and glory. And, and we just need to continue to serve him and to put him first and to honor him and be patient. It's so hard, isn't it, to be patient? I'm being patient. He just needs to hurry up. (laughs) And that word patience is also endurance. It's the same root. Just endure. Be patient. It has a concept of suffering. And we're just suffering, being patient and enduring until Jesus Christ. Now, John was on the island that is called Patmos. And it's about 40 miles from Turkey. And you know, the good thing about that, and we got a map of that, I think, to put up for you. Do we have a map to put up of that? It's up. It's just not in the back. I guess our thing's messed up back there. There we go. And here it is, right there. The island of Patmos. And it has a big, giant, arctic, white dot. Oh, no, that's just a white dot. I'm sorry. Um, Here it is. And the reason this is interesting, because this is the seven churches. This is where they are. We're going to be talking about this entire area, Asia Minor or Turkey. And um, again, it's an island that was about 10 miles by 6 miles. And uh, they did quarry marble from there. And John's writing about A.D. 96, Emperor uh, Domitian banned him there. After his death, he was released and he was able to go back to, to Ephesus. But here he is on the island of Patmos, quarrying marble, as almost a hundred-year-old man. Some say he was over a hundred years old at this time. And during that time, the word of God for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And notice verse 10 here. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Imagine if you're 100 years old going down into these mines six days a week quarrying stone and then you get a day of rest. I don't know if I'd be in the spirit. (laughs) I'd be grumpy and sore and blistered and upset and going, I just want to sleep. I don't want to hear from God. I don't want to hear from anybody. But here's John, self-controlled, in the spirit, full of goodness, full of patience, full of joy, full of love, and he's in the spirit. Some of you guys might be here tonight going, oh, Brian preaches short tonight. I'm just tired. I want to go home. My wife dragged me here. I hope she's happy. My kids want to go to Awana's and sick of this stuff. Man, I just don't want to go home. And Imagine John suffering so greatly at such an age 
and he's in the spirit. His body, no doubt, beaten and broken and bruised and bloody and cut. But nevertheless, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. I believe this was Sunday. They did at this time were worshiping on the day of resurrection. We know in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says now on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, when the disciples came together to break bread. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each of you, and then he's talking about breathing the tithes and the offerings. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, 25, I think a very appropriate scripture for the time we're in right now. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Not forsaking, what? The assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. (laughs) Boy, we know we're in the last days of the last days. We're in the last minutes of the last days. How much more we need to gather together. You know, if, if a fire is burning and an ember breaks off and goes sets by itself, what's that ember gonna do? It's gonna get cold and burn out, isn't it? You gotta take that ember and put it back into the fire. That's what we need in one another. We we cannot make it alone. We need, you know, if you have a hand laying off by itself, that's a pretty freaky thing, isn't it? Attach the hand back to the body, it makes sense. We need to be gathered together, especially as we see the Lord, the times when the Lord's going to return and rapture the church. So whenever that is, you need to gather together. There's not a certain day or a certain time. I know in Brazil, they meet together Sunday nights. I know in some communities that are holiday communities. For example, outside of Budapest where Greg lived, the community survived on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. All the people coming to that community for vacation or just even a weekend. And then Monday um, is their day off and Tuesday is when they would have church. And some people would come in and they would just demand, nope, you gotta have church on Sunday morning. If you're not meeting Sunday morning, you gotta meet on Saturday or whatever they would demand. This is the only day and if you don't meet on this day, you're in sin. It was just stupid. Whenever that church decides to gather together, gather together with them. And and, and don't don't forsake the gathering together, brethren. Exhort one another. It means to to, to forcefully encourage that one another would continue to meet together, especially when we see the signs of the times. And then notice he says there in verse 10, hearing the Lord behind me. This is an expression that you're submitted to. That you're, you're a person that doesn't need to be like a horse or a mule, have a bridle in your mouth and be dragged around. That right behind you, you can just hear the commands. For example, in Isaiah 30, verse 21, it says, your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand, whenever you turn to the left, And of course, daily, we see this prophecy of Jesus when he would be in human flesh. Verse 5 
tells us. But Isaiah 50, verse 4, and like I said, verse 5 talks about Jesus' crucifixion. So you know it's talking about Jesus. But here it says, this is Jesus speaking about himself when he would be in human flesh. The Lord God has given me, and we know it's Jesus, the tongue of the learned. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it's the word disciple. You give me the tongue of a disciple, a learner, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. How does that happen? He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Each and every day, God has a word for you, a rhema word from the Logos. God has a word to speak to us. And that word is for your soul. And then as you speak it to others, it's going to encourage the weary in the day. Well, moving on in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. This word is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first letter and the last letter of the alphabet. And he says, I am the first and I am the last. You know, only one person can say that, right? Two people can't say, I'm the first and the last. Oh, that's cool, I am too. It doesn't work, does it? Only one person can be the first and the last. And that person is Jesus. In Isaiah 41 verse 4, Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord. And notice the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. In theology, that's called the tetragrammaton. We transliterate that Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H. And the Jews say there is no way to utter that. When the Hebrew... Scribes were writing the scriptures when they before they came and to write this, they would go and they would bathe themselves. They would put on new clothes. They would get a new ink with a new quill, and they would worship. And then they would write it until they came to this again. And there is no way to utter that. The Jews today will say Yah or Yahweh. How did we get the enunciation Jehovah? The, there was a group of German scholars, and the Y in the German is a J sound. And what they said, well, maybe there's a secret to this. Let's take the vowels out of the other word, Lord, which is Adonai, and let's take those vowels and put them in between the YHVH or the YHWH, that one particular letter could be translated a couple different ways, transliterated a couple different ways. And then they said, let's take the vowels out of Elohim, the word God. And that's why sometimes you see a different spelling for Jehovah. And, and I hate that enunciation. It's just a group of guys that were fully speculating we just need to go back and the Jews would be the best ones to know how to enunciate something from their Bible. Don't you think? And that's how you end up with that Jehovah enunciation. But here it says in Isaiah 41 verse 4, I the Lord, Yah or Yahweh, am the first and with the last I am he. And also Isaiah 44 verse 6, 
Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the one to buy us out of slavery. And Titus, it plainly says, we have one God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord of hosts, he says here in Isaiah 44, 6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There is none other besides him. And he goes on in Revelation 1.11 saying this, What you see, write in a book, send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I don't need to go into this because the very next chapter takes each one of these one by one and we get to hear from the Lord about each of these churches and, of course, how they apply to us. But notice here, he tells him to write this down. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, Then the Lord answered me, Habakkuk, and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. You know, it's interesting that it would be written down and plain so we can grab it and run with it, especially in these last days. We can apply it to our lives. However, I really think the reason he had to tell John 12 times in the book of Revelation to write it down is because it was overwhelming. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul didn't want to say directly it was even him, but he said he got a glimpse into heaven. And he said any earthly words would pervert what he saw. That there were no earthly words to describe what he saw. And Paul was going to keep it to himself. And he did. He didn't share anything with us. And if you would, John, it seems like maybe he wouldn't have shared it with us either. He would have felt like trying to describe these very difficult things, these very holy things, would have been wrong. And you know, really, that's a real good rule. If God gives you a heavenly vision, keep it to yourself. Unless he tells you to share it with others, keep it to yourself. There's always a bunch of weirdos who have gone into heaven, gone into hell, gone into something, and they always come up with things that are so extra-biblical and unbiblical. But there's always goobers to tell you and goobers to listen. And, you know, I, I just a lot of them are just completely unbiblical, and it's just a big waste of time. And I honestly think, unless God tells you to speak it, as he had to tell John over and over again, write it down, write it down, write it down. It seems that John was unwilling to do that. And I think that's a good rule of thumb. If God really does speak to you about heaven, keep it to yourself, unless the Lord commands you to write it down. Well, in verse 12 here, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Oh, gee, that's a big help. Here's John, who hasn't seen Jesus since the resurrection and seen him ascend into heaven. Many decades have gone by and he's heard the voice and he's turning around and he's ready to see seven golden lampstands. Now, I'm going to cheat. Let's look down to verse 20. 
The seven lampstands which you saw are what? The seven churches. It's the church, guys. Where is the voice coming from? Church. Where is God speaking from today? Church. Where is Jesus dwelling in the midst of? We're going to see. It's church. Guys, Satan wants to diminish everything that God is lifting up. Satan wants to diminish Jesus. Oh, he's an angel. He's a God. He's a man who became a God. They, they always want to diminish. And you know what else they want to diminish? Church. Oh, it's a bunch of hypocrites. That pastor down there is full of beep. The church is just a place where there's a bunch of weak-minded, you know, he, he's working overtime, isn't he? Trying to tell you, don't go to church, don't spend time at church, don't give energy or money or anything else to the church because it's a worthless place. But look at this, guys. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But Paul's talking to Timothy about the church, and he says, if I'm delayed, write, I write this so you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 3.15, which is the church of the living God, what? The pillar and the ground of truth. What is the church? It is the pillar. It is the ground of the truth. What is the truth? It's Jesus and all that he spoke. In Matthew 16, verse 18, he says also, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build, what? My church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Here the Lord tells us that he's going to build his church. There's two things on earth that make it to heaven. One is my puppy. No, it's not it. Um, One is the scars that we put on Jesus. We're going to see that the scars we put on Christ, we're going to see forever. And the second thing is the church. The church makes it to heaven. In Matthew 18, verse 18 to verse 20, he says this, And assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning what? Is the verse up? I can't see it back there. Yeah. Let's try it again. And if two of you agree on earth concerning what? Anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Do you see how important it is for us to get together and pray, guys? (laughs) And in verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, what? I am there in the midst of them. Do Do you guys get this? Jesus is in the midst of the church even if it's a small church. And he is especially together with us when we pray. Anything that we ask, and of course we know in 1 John 5, when we pray according to his will, he hears us. But nevertheless, when we come together in his will and we pray, we whatever we bind on earth is bound in heaven, loose on earth is loose in heaven. Do you realize the power we have? 
Christ is right here in the midst of us. The church is a powerful entity. It's that which is holding back the, 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 the flood of evil. It's that which is holding up the, 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 the pillar of righteousness and truth. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. Do I get an amen from the ladies here tonight? Amen. Just as Christ, what? Love the church. Do you understand this? I will build my church. I am in the midst of my church. My church is the pillar of the ground of the truth. My church is this powerful entity. Whatever they bind on earth is bound in heaven. Loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Do we understand what the church is? And Jesus loves the church. And what did he do for the church in verse 25? He gave himself for her. Jesus on the cross died for the church. Because he loves the church. Do you love the church? (laughs) Are you willing to sacrifice yourself for the church? It's, It's an eternal thing, guys. Everything you do for the church is eternal. And then he says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Do you realize here tonight, Jesus is washing you and cleansing you And it says he sent the word and healed them as he preached. Tonight, Jesus, through the word, is doing great and powerful things far beyond what we can see. And in verse 27 of of Ephesians 5, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. As we come again and gather together in his name, We are the church. We are the hands and the feet. He is the head. It's a glorious thing. This is the pillar of the ground of the truth. Wow, we could go on and on and on. Look it up. There's a lot of things in the New Testament about what the church is, but it is not some minimal, diminished, weak thing that have existed or didn't exist, we wouldn't even notice. Yeah, that's what Satan would like you to believe. (laughs) Satan would like you to believe. Go to church tonight, don't go to church tonight. Basically the same thing. A little tiny difference. Hear the word preached, don't hear the word preached. Uh, It's so minimal, you can hardly even tell whether you went to church or not. Guys, I hope not. I hope you're in the spirit (laughs) on the Lord's day and you're gathered together here in his name. And, you know, right now, I mean, there's some of you in the spirit and you're catching everything. And the person right next to you here in the same exact sermon is not in the spirit. And they're just like, do, 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 you know. There's little tiny people knocking each other over and, you know, they're thinking about the football game last week. And I hope you're in the spirit. I hope you're catching it. It's a powerful thing what God's doing. Well, verse 13. Now, in the midst of the seven lampstands, in the midst of the church, there's one like. As soon as you see that, that should trigger it. We talked about that in the introduction. We're going to head into a poetic language. 
like the Son of Man. That is no small title. Jesus, the Son of Man. Go back and look in Daniel. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. God came into human flesh to be the Savior of all the world. He's clothed with a garment down to the feet. He's a priestly one. He's a royal one. This is, again, the garment of kings. It's the garment of priests. He's girded about with a chest with a gold band. So was the high priest uh, in the book of Exodus. And in verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool. Guys, this is not something you're to try to picture going, okay, let me picture Jesus. Ooh, white like wool. You know, I've seen pictures where it's like, wah! Looks like he just stuck his finger in a light bulb or in a light socket. You know, this is not the point. The point is, is that he is not a literal picture of Christ. It's one that's speaking of holiness and of righteousness. And notice here, as white as snow. (laughs) Okay, we're not saying he's a white guy. When somebody is white as snow, nobody's white as snow. We're all some color of brown. Nobody's black and nobody's white like snow. We're all somewhere in between that, aren't we? And really, the Bible says the life is in the blood. And it really doesn't matter what color you are, is it? The blood, if you need a transfusion, it doesn't matter what nationality you are. The life is in the blood. And again, we we see pictures of this white as snow and the transfiguration of Matthew 17, verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. Oh, that's white. (laughs) Come on. And his clothes became as white as what? Light. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 3, his clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launder on earth can whiten them. So they're trying to describe some some color, some brilliance that we've never seen. That we are going to go to heaven, guys, and we are going to see colors and things that we have never experienced on this earth. And they're trying to say that I saw Jesus in a righteousness that cannot be explained in human words. And again, his eyes were like the flame of fire referring to one who was holy, but also coming in judgment. And this is what we're seeing in verse 15. His feet were like fine brass, which is the metal of judgment. In John 5, it says, all judgment's been given unto Jesus, that they would honor the Son equally as they honor the Father. And it is refined in the furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever been at the foot of a waterfall. But you can scream into the ear of the person next to you and they cannot hear you. Because the waterfall covers every single tone there is in human existence. And it is so majestic that you can't hear anything but the waterfall. And I love that. (laughs) That when Jesus speaks, you hear nothing else. 
He covers every channel on the radio station, every airway, every, every tone that can be in existence. He covers them all, and you hear nothing but him. And on the day of judgment, we stand before him. That's the way it's going to be. In verse 16, And he had in his right hand the seven stars, the churches. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. The word sword here is, in, in the Greek, it means a heavy sword. And it was used to kill and destroy. It could have spoke of the smaller sword that you use sort of, in, in, you know, in a sword fight. This is not the one that's used. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 again, it says, The word of God is living and what? Powerful. It's not one of those slick little, you know, let's do a duel. It's this heavy, powerful thing. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's sharper than a sword. Sharper than a razor blade. Sharper than any sharpness we can ever imagine. Piercing even between the division of the soul and the spirit. There really isn't a division there. Like the joints and the marrow. It's almost undividable, but yet God can do it. And is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You know, who knows our own heart? God alone knows our own heart. And also in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, and he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. So again, out of his mouth comes the sword that just is powerful and piercing and divides and helps us to know really what we can never see ourselves, the very thoughts and intents of our heart. And again, his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. You know, if you stare at the sun in its strength, you go blind. <laughs> and I, but, but yet, how can, how can we describe the Lord? It's so important that we realize that no apostle ever described him. Oh, he was about six feet tall, had brown hair, looked a little Arab, you know, had darker complexion than most of the Arab. You know, it was none of that. They could have easily have done that, couldn't they? Couldn't they have given some physical description? But they gave none. And if you go to Israel today... <laughs> I love it because you have Jews that are the white Europeans and you have Jews from Ethiopia, the blackest people on earth. And you have your Arab looking ones, you got your Oriental looking ones. They're every nationality. Remember God said, I'm going to scatter to you the four corners of the earth. And he did. And I wonder at the time of Christ, remember the Babylonian exile, they were scattered. And then they came back. And at the time of Christ, I, I believe the same thing. You had a multi-ethnicity within the Jewish people. And Jesus came from Joseph and Mary. And when they came back to Israel, where did they go? Nazareth. What was that like down there? It was, did anything good come out of Nazareth? It's sort of like everybody who's 
poor and lowly and, you know, sort of on the low end of the nationality chain, whatever that was at that time, I don't know. They go to Nazareth. But I love the fact there's no description. But we do have this in Isaiah 53 too. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root of a dry ground. <laughs> you ever seen a root out of a dry ground? Not very healthy. He has no form or comeliness. That's a nice way of saying he was ugly. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was not attractive. He came from poverty. He came from no education. And the lowliest of the lowliest had no problem approaching him and talking to him and asking him to touch them and to come to their house and pray for him. And that was no accident. You know, the one thing that I think we're going to be overwhelmed with when we see God and all his glory in heaven is that he is so approachable. I don't think, even though he's the king of kings and lord of lords and all his glory, we're going to feel so comfortable in his presence. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, it says this, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know him thus no longer. You know what? Even if we had a description of Jesus according to the flesh, it would mean nothing to us. It would have absolutely no significance. Because we're going to see Jesus in Revelation. And he, we're going to see him as he is, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I will say this. We have one description of Jesus from himself. In Matthew 11, I am lowly and gentle of heart. And in my presence, what? You'll find a rest for your souls. That's it. The only description we need. He's lowly, humble, and gentle of heart. A bruised reed, he doesn't snap off and throw it away. He stops and he bends it. Or he he puts tape around it and tries to mend it back. There's some... A, a little light ready to go out. He doesn't just blow it out and then fill up the thing with oil again. He carefully keeps that light going and gently pours the oil in until it's filled back up and the light never gets snuffed out. Is that you? You're running dry? <laughs> He's not going to snuff you out. Has the world just broke you and here you are, just a limb, <laughs> just sort of dangling at the end of some branch, looking like you're never going to bear fruit? He's going to come and bind you up. Bind up the brokenhearted. Well, verse 17. And when I saw him, what did John do? I fell at his feet as dead. (laughs) What did God tell Moses when Moses said, I want to see you face to face. Remember Exodus 33, 20? But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and what? Live. And here's John. (laughs) One who walked with Jesus for a very long time, sat around many campfires, was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, was with him when he raised the dead. But here's John now seeing Jesus no longer according to the flesh. And what happens? Boom. (laughs) He falls down like a dead man. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
I don't know about you. I'm so glad Jesus is the first. The lowly, gentle of heart, who loves us, who died for us, who rose again for us, who's ready to have mercy and grace on anybody who will come to him, anybody who will come to him, he will save you, he will forgive you. Anybody who cries out, have mercy on me. Remember the leper who came to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. I'm clean, be cleansed. How long did it take Jesus? Ah, let me think about that. Can you come back in a month and let me? What? If you're willing, I'm willing, you're cleansed. Jesus is willing. He died on the cross for all. Whoever will come, he will receive. It's that simple. Well, in verse 18, I am he who lives, who was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now, some people read this going, ah, he can't wait to send people to hell. It's the opposite, guys. He's the one that nobody is going to hell until he has the opportunity. His Holy Spirit is in the world convicting him of sin and righteousness and of judgment, calling people into salvation. He, it says in Matthew 25 that hell was made for the devil and his angels, but yet man who will not receive him will go there also. And so he has the keys of Hades and death because he doesn't want man to go there. He's wanting to set men free from that place. And in verse 19, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after this. Eleven more times after this, he's going to say, write these things down. And in verse 20, we end here tonight. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. And we will get into those churches beginning next week. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we again just sense the power of it. We sense that you are speaking. And as you said earlier in chapter one, there's a blessing on everybody who hears and the one who preaches it and and those who hear it being preached, there's a blessing. And we thank you tonight for that blessing. We need it. And tonight we walk out of here realizing that we are a part of an eternal thing. We are a part of the most powerful thing on earth. That you are not dwelling in the midst of kings and and royalty that you dwell in the midst of your church and you're waiting for your church to to believe you for great and mighty things to have a faith as a little mustard seed to speak to mountains be uprooted and cast into the sea that we can pray for people to get jobs and people to be healed and people to be saved and for us to be evangelists and whatever it is you have lord on our hearts and it will be done Lord, we ask that you would give us the the insight and the faith to pray because it's going to be done. Strengthen our faith. Strengthen our life of prayer that this house, your house here, would be a house of prayer. That we would see great and mighty things done. That we wouldn't be said of Calvary Chapel, San Diego, you received not because you prayed not. Lord, Wash us with your word tonight. We sense that you are. 
without spot, without wrinkle or any such thing that you've prepared us as your bride ready for that day. Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're being patient. We're hanging in there. Even though like John, we feel beat up and bruised and bloodied, we want to be in the spirit. We want to be here on the Lord's day. We want to be servants. We want to be used. We want to come early and stay late. We don't want to be a part of that mindset that's trying to get in and get out and, and, and not care and not serve. Lord, please change our minds, change our hearts. Let us be a people after your own heart who does your will. As the seven angels are surrounding us right now, angels go to church, you go to church, that we would love your church as you love your church. And as you were willing to give yourself for the church, that we were willing to give ourselves for the church. Please, Lord, bless us. Free us up with servants to serve, with finance to do the things we need to do, with people willing to go, with hearts on fire for you, that people would come to know you each and every week. As heads are bowed right now, there's some of you tonight that are just not right with God. As we talked about the Lord coming, you're saying, I am not confident if the Lord would come back tonight. I'm ready. Just lift your hand up saying, Brian, pray for me. I want to be ready. I want to be 100% ready. I want everybody around me to be 100% ready. Yes. Yes, I see those hands. Yes. Right now in your heart, those who lifted your hands, just cry out. Lord, forgive me. In your heart, just cry out. Lord, forgive me. Whether it's selfishness or self-centeredness or self-seeking or sin or vices, whatever it is, I, 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 your spirit's piercing me right to the heart. I know you paid for that sin. You died and rose again. You have the keys of hell and death because you're locking it away from me. You don't want me to go there. And I come to you right now for eternal life. I surrender myself to you from this day forward. I am surrendered in a way I've not been surrendered before. I commit my life to you in a way I've never committed it to you before. Is God speaking to you, whether that's morning by morning (laughs) to quicken your ear, whether that's the area of serving, our finances, our situation at work, our situation with a family, I could continue to go on. God's speaking to you. And it's that thing that's keeping you from you and God. Maybe it's bitterness. Just say, God, I I give it to you. From this day forward, I sacrifice it to you at the cross. No longer. I'm the only thing I'm focused on is following you. To hear that voice behind me, turn to the right, turn to the left. I'm not the donkey. I'm not the horse that you've got to put a bridle in. Lead me from the front. I'm just right out front and I can hear your voice and, and, and turn because I'm totally submitted. Thank you for washing us in the water of the word. We just sense your joy, your blessing. Thank you, Jesus. We, we know tonight that you love what's been taught here the pillar of the ground of the truth. (laughs) We thank you for your church. We thank you for each and every person, the hand, the foot, the eye, the ear around us. We thank you and just give us that love for the church that you have. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen, amen.